0: A decade ago now, Rob Bell published a book called Love Wins, which I know many of you are probably familiar with. It's the one that convinced many evangelicals that Rob Bell was officially a heretic now because he came down vaguely and uncertainly on the side of universalism and with such self-conscious artistry. At the time, I remember thinking that the reaction was entirely overblown because it's a fairly unoriginal book. Hardly any of the ideas in it hadn't already been said by either N.T. Wright or C.S. Lewis decades prior, but that's another story. What I want to talk about today as we get started is my other reaction to the book, which was that it accurately and helpfully really describes one theme that undeniably runs through the Bible, that God is love, that God will ultimately get what God wants and that what God wants is for the people God loves to be with God. But what it fails to do, is to take seriously another theme, a competing theme that likewise runs through the Bible of God giving people freedom to walk down the path that leads to death, and that the consequences that come along that path and at the end of that path, they're just as real as God's love is. Both themes are there. And when we grab hold of one and ignore or downplay the other, we end up with distortions of the full picture. I think that's Rob Bell's main failure in the book. Well, other than writing prose, but formatting it like poetry to make it seem more profound than it really is. But anyway, I should note that that failure is no greater a failure than the many, many Christians over the years who have made the opposite mistake of overemphasizing the theme of judgment and eternal consequences and minimizing God's love. So what does this have to do with wrapping up our series, Following Their Lead, where we asked how listening to African-American theologians might help us read the Bible better? Because Rob Bell, definitely not black. We did this series because many Christians make the same mistake as Rob Bell in Love Wins. We latch onto and overemphasize certain themes in the Bible and minimize others, and end up with a distorted view of who God is and who we are. And the way out of that trap is to listen to other voices who might see other themes and who might help us get a clearer, fuller picture of what the Bible is trying to say to us because God is not simple. Sometimes we act as if God is or should be, but it shouldn't be surprising really that God is at least as complex as human beings are probably more so really, if you think about it. And well, we are usually a bundle of seeming contradictions, competing priorities, desires that are in conflict with one another it shouldn't surprise us that God is the same way. In the book of Job, chapter 11, Job's friend Zophar puts it this way. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? It is higher than the heavens. What can you do? It's deeper than shale or the grave. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. God is mystery. And yet... God comes near to us, makes God's self known through the Bible, through Jesus, in nature. Both are true. God is mystery. God is knowable. God is transcendent. God is close. The Bible is full of these seeming contradictions, these competing themes, and in each case, they're both true. But it's almost impossible for us to hold that full picture. Our brains want to simplify, to make things understandable, and so we hold on to one side and kind of push the other away. And we end up with distortion. And that distortion leads to confusion when we're confronted with the reality of a fuller picture of God. God is love, we say. That's what's true. But then we're confused about, what is all this violence doing in the Bible? God is justice, we say. That's what's true. So why don't bad people get what they deserve? One of the differences between modern philosophy and postmodern philosophy is in the field of what's called ontology. Ontology is our understanding of how we know stuff. How does knowledge work? How do I know things are true? And we can describe the difference between modern and postmodern understandings of this question, how do I know stuff to be true, with two different images. In modern philosophy, knowledge is like a wall. So if you picture a wall, I lay a sturdy foundation of knowledge and facts, and then I can build on top of that with another layer of knowledge, and then another layer of knowledge on top of that, and so on. Each layer follows from and rests upon the layer before. So I have the foundational pieces of knowledge that then support all the other things that I know. Probably the most famous example of this is the philosopher and mathematician René Descartes' statement, I think, therefore I am, which was his attempt to supply a foundation stone in the wall of knowledge. My mind can think and question and even can doubt its own existence. And that reality, that independent reality of my mind, proves that my mind does in fact exist. And then I can build knowledge on top of that firm foundation. Descartes put it like this, And as I observed this truth, I think, therefore, I am, it was so certain and of such evidence that no grounds for doubt could be capable of shaking it. I concluded that I might, therefore, accept it as the first principle of the philosophy of which I was in search. It was the foundation stone upon which another stone could be laid and then another, and and then the whole rest of the wall could be built on top of that. So, turning to our topic again here, this is the error that Rob Bell makes, and I'm sure he would hate me calling him modern, but he puts God is love as a foundation stone in the wall that he's building, and then builds a wall on top of that truth, until he reaches conclusions that ignore the competing themes that are all through the Bible. And the only thing you can do with those competing themes is to explain them away, because they don't fit into the wall that I've built. If I tried to fit them in, the whole thing would topple over, which is the problem with modern ways of thinking. When one of the stones in our wall gets exposed to not be true or not be true in the way that we thought it was, we think we need to tear the whole thing down and start over again, this time with better foundation stones. Meredith tells me there's a thriving marketplace devoted to this on social media with those who are deconstructing their faith. And we see the modern philosophy even in that word. Deconstructing is something I do to a wall or a building when part of the construction fails. I need to deconstruct and then reconstruct with better bricks or better plans or better techniques. But what if, postmodern philosophy says, what if a wall isn't the best image for how we know things? Postmodern philosophy offers a different image. What if knowledge is more like a spider's web than a wall? What if the things we know were pictured like strands of a web that are all interconnected with each other rather than one thing built on top of another? There are still anchor points that hold the web in place, but the structure is flexible. It's pliable. It's able to endure stress and even certain amounts of breakage while still surviving. We were talking about this idea, and Meredith found an article about a study that MIT scientists had done on spiders' webs, showing that they are actually designed far better than the walls to endure extreme stress. Unlike a wall, which if one block is removed or too much wind comes along, topples over, webs are designed so that if the wind blows extra hard, or a stick falls through the web, or a bird flies through it, or whatever, a few of the strands will break, but the web will stay together. In fact, the rest of the web will be stronger after the few strands break, allowing the rest of the web to withstand the extra stress that's being put on it. The spider then will only have to go back and repair the broken parts, not rebuild the whole thing. Put another way, the whole structure doesn't need to be deconstructed and then reconstructed because there was nothing wrong with the whole structure. There was just something wrong in that one localized spot. And the spider, and you may relate to this, doesn't have the energy to start all over again, over and over again, every time one strand in the web fails. Deconstruction is what happens when we think about our faith like a wall. We learn something new that contradicts our old beliefs about God, and then we think the whole wall needs to come down. But our faith isn't a wall. It's a web. And sometimes strands break and need to be replaced because they just aren't true or they just don't work anymore. We realize our old ways of seeing God don't match reality. And so those strands break and we can rebuild new strands based on the other parts of the web that are still true because the whole thing hasn't unraveled. It's just that one part. And so if we have grown up believing it to be true, that God is no respecter of persons, as Paul says uh, that the ground is flat at the foot of the cross, as Billy Graham said, I think, that all are equal before God. And then we hear a black theologian talking about God being especially on the side of the poor and the oppressed, or that God desires and celebrates our differences and diversity. Our wall didn't topple over. Some needed tension got added to our web. When we were introduced to an individualistic faith about my personal relationship with Jesus, and then African-American theologians stress the essentially communal, even political nature of following Jesus, my web just got stronger. When my faith includes God being a God of order, who commands us to respect laws and pray for government officials and all that, and then black theologians present a God who desires to overturn the corrupt and oppressive structures of empire, well, a few strands might need rebuilding there, huh? But the result will be a stronger web. One that can withstand the stressors of the real world, can withstand the tensions of the real living God, the lion who is a lamb, as Meredith said. The lamb who is a lion, the mystery of it all, of following a God who is in the end, no matter how much God accommodates or reveals God's self to us, a God who is beyond us, unfathomable to us, and who's right there with us, closer than the air that we breathe. I was reading in John Goldengay's book, Old Testament Theology, for a future (laughs) series, and I came across a quote that I thought was really helpful for our discussion here. And it's kind of a long quote, but I'm going to read it all for us right now because I really think it has something important to say about this whole discussion. So this is from pages 169 and 170 of volume two of John Goldengay's Old Testament Theology. It is hard for us to bring the two sides of Yahweh together, he writes. In this, we resemble ourselves as small children in our attitude to our parents and in our attitude towards ourselves. Our instinct is to see our parents either as all good or as all bad in the sense that either they do what we want and they are all good or they fail to do what we want, acting in ways that seem inexplicable and they are all bad. Good and bad are thus not moral categories, but relational ones that point to what seems good or bad from the perspective of our desires and perceptions. Growing towards maturity involves coming to see that our parents are neither all good nor all bad, in that sense, and in other other senses. They are people in their own right with their own agendas and concerns, which include matters that are priorities to us, but also extend beyond those in ways we may not be able to understand. They are not all good or all bad in the way that they approach our agenda, but a mixture. He goes on, Christians often expect God to be all good. In a moral sense, that is presumably true. But our perspective on God's goodness is often that of children in relation to their parents' goodness. A major theme in Yahweh's confrontation of Job is that Yahweh's agenda And concern for the world is much broader than involving merely what is good for Job or even for humanity as a whole. As far as we are concerned, God does good and bad things. And often we cannot see how the things that feel bad and look bad can be the acts of one who is good. Living by trust in God involves coming to believe that they may be good even so. As with our parents, if we are lucky. The evidence is the fact that many of God's acts do look good. We then trust God for the others. There are acts of grace and roughness that are inexplicable with God, just as there are acts of blessing and toughness that are explicable. Whether acting explicably or inexplicably, Yahweh's dominant side is to be loving and merciful. Following the lead of black theologians helps us move towards the sort of maturity That Golden Gay is writing about. Not just on the tension that Golden Gay is talking about between the toughness of God and the goodness of God. Not just on the tension that Rob Bell talks about between the love of God and the justice of God. But in all the myriad tensions we find as we read the Bible and follow Jesus into the real world together. So thank God for our black brothers and sisters who help us move closer to a mature faith.